be in Nehemiah chapter 1. And while you're turning there, if you missed last week's service at the fairgrounds, you probably stayed dry, but you really missed a blessing. And we had a, we had a wonderful time, and there were so many people from here who came out there and helped. I mean, they just, what can I do? And they did it, and that is such a blessing to me and to us as a church fellowship. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll read that in just a moment. What if you were to find out that God had answered your prayers again and again, or at least he'd started the ball rolling in answering your prayers, and yet you never knew it? Never knew about it. What if you were to learn that God, who you assumed was not taking your calls, had answered hundreds of times, maybe thousands, but you missed his return call? Did you know that God often answers our prayers with a call? If we're out of range or if we're turned off, we're going to miss the answer to our request. Let me illustrate. Let's say a former LCC member has moved to California, and she calls me up one day and says, Shane, I really need you to visit a friend of mine in cold water. He's dying of cancer, and he wants to talk to a pastor. And so, so she leaves that message for me, and I say, wow, that's good. I'd be happy to do that. I want to do that. So I call her right back because I need her friend's name and address, but my call goes straight to voicemail. I call again. I call again, but our former member doesn't pick up. So I leave messages. My call is the answer to her request, or at least the beginning of it. But she's not picking up. I'm afraid that happens to us. I'm afraid what we really want is this. We want God to answer our prayers without involving us. We want to see the results, but we don't want to be part of the process. So when we call on God with a request, it doesn't occur to us that he might return the call. We want him to take care of our request and to do it, please, if at all possible, without involving us. You just take care of it, God. How sad and how depressing to think that my life could have been different, could have been better if I just paid attention. I could have seen my problems resolve themselves in beautiful ways. I could have grown mighty in faith. Lives could have been changed if I just paid attention. But because I assumed the answer would look a certain way, because I thought the answer would happen remotely without my involvement, because I was all wrapped up, and smothered might be a better word, in my own affairs and disconnected from God, I missed what he was doing and missed the chance to be a part of it. Have you heard people say you have to be willing to put feet to your prayers? If by that they mean you need to pray as if it all depends on God, but work as if it all depends on you, I couldn't disagree more. You can't pray as if it all depends on God when you're acting as if it all depends on you. It's psychologically impossible. But if by putting feet to your prayers, they mean you need to pay attention to what God is doing and when appropriate, join him in it. If they mean you need to pray as if everything depends on God, but act as if he might actually call you to join him, then I agree 100%. See, if we think we've done our prayer duty, 
when we've called on God and delivered our request, then we're mistaken. Calling on him is only one step in the process. Once we've called on him, we need to pay attention in case he calls us back. How often it happens in the scripture that when someone calls on God, he returns their call. You remember the famous passage from the prophet Joel? It's quoted twice in the New Testament, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And lots of us have heard that part of the verse, but there's more to that verse. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. How about that? The Lord calls on those who call on him. And if that's the case, we better be ready to pick up when he calls. And not only do we need to listen for his call, we also need to watch, or we might miss what the Lord is doing. Have you ever noticed how often the words watch and pray go together in the Bible? Watch and pray so that you will, will not fall into temptation. That's Matthew and Mark, Jesus speaking. In Luke, Jesus says, be always on the watch and pray. St. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. We might translate that as to prayer, be on call, watching as you pray. It's a huge mistake to pray and not watch, a mistake we make all the time. Not only missing what God wants to do and will do, you miss participating in it. In Ephesians, we read, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. The word the NIV translates as be alert. Guess what? It's the Greek word to watch. Praying and watching are two sides of the same coin. If we're going to be on call, which is how I suggested we translate Colossians 4.2, prayer is going to expand beyond the prayer closet. If we're going to be on call, you can't keep prayer in the prayer closet. Watching in prayer doesn't stop when we get off our knees. It continues throughout the day. The person who's learned to pray this way is on call 24-7. That person doesn't just go about his life independently, asking God to intervene from time to time when things become unmanageable. No, he or she is working for God, with God, and is involved in what God is doing. It's a whole different way to go about prayer. We stop thinking of God as our ATM in heaven. You know, just say the right words, push the right prayer buttons, add in Jesus' name, and what you want will come out. We stop thinking of him that way and start thinking of him as Lord. One person who can teach us about this is the Old Testament leader, Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't in vocational ministry. He wasn't a priest, wasn't a prophet, wasn't a Levite. He was an overworked government official, a guy who carried a lot of responsibility. He worked hard and felt the dual pressures of managing workers and satisfying superiors, like a lot of you. Let's read his story, and I'm going to read the whole first chapter of Nehemiah, <clears throat> the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, 
Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. By the way, when we do go deep on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about the scripture that he's quoting from. His prayer isn't coming out of thin air. It's coming out of a life that's filled with the Bible. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen to be a dwelling place for my name. They're your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah chapter 1. Cupbearer to the king may not sound like a high-level job to us, but it required the highest security clearance in the kingdom. Nehemiah was one of the king's most trusted officials. He had unrestricted access to the king. Not even the queen had unrestricted access to the king. And he also had managerial powers. And like most managers, I suppose he was trying to do his job well, keep his employers happy, and care for his employees. Like the vast majority of people, Nehemiah lived in the workaday world. He lived in your world. He didn't regard prayer as a luxury for the clergy and the leisure class. He required a necessity for the nine-to-five crowd. He was working one day in the city of Susa. Susa is where the Persian government headquartered in the winter. He was working when his brother Hanani and some other men came to call on him. They were newly arrived from Jerusalem and they had bad news. Though the temple was operational again and the city was partially resettled, the city walls had never been rebuilt. The gates were in a shambles. People weren't moving back into the city because the city was unsafe. When Nehemiah heard this, his emotions were deeply stirred and surprisingly stirred. He says he sat down and cried. But he didn't stop there. He knew that when our emotions are stirred, whether with sorrow or delight, it's time to pray. He probably had a few days off work, and he used them to spend a block of time in prayer. So the first thing I want us to note is that this guy was just doing his job when God broke in. He's going to work every day, trying to be the best cupbearer he could be. Now, it's important that we grasp the significance of this. Nehemiah was a talented guy pursuing a successful career when God interrupted. God doesn't wait until a person's off work or retired to give him a job. It doesn't help to tell God, please don't call me at work. He calls people at work all the time. 
Moses was on the job when God called him. So was Gideon, Boaz, David, Amos, Matthew. He was even at a lousy job when God called him. Peter was just finishing a shift when Jesus stepped onto his boat and into his life. None of these guys were at a worship service. They weren't at the temple. They were on the job. We're mistaken if we think that God only calls religious workers and preachers. Another thing to note, Nehemiah was on call when God called. As soon as he heard about what was going on, he started listening and talking to God. That's the kind of thing the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said, devote yourself to prayer, watching, being watchful, literally watching in it. The word devote is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as give attention to, give full time to. It's used to describe the readiness of an attache who drops whatever he's doing and answers the call of his superior officer. He's on call. That's the way we're to be in regard to prayer. Whatever we're doing, farming or fishing, assembling parts or teaching students, driving a bus or examining a patient, we need to be ready to pray at the drop of a pen. We need to be on call. So does that describe you? Notice, too, that Nehemiah did not call on God, deliver his request, and then move on to other things. I suspect that as he prayed, he went through a process. And it might have been something like this. His first thought was, something's got to be done. God, something's got to be done. Do something to change this. But as he kept on praying, he thought, maybe I could do something. Maybe I ought to do something. And then I think God expects me to do something. He wasn't praying as if everything depended on God and working as if everything depended on him. He was praying as if everything depended on God and acting as if God might want to include him in that work. Uh, let's think about how this might happen to one of us. You're at work, and you see one of your coworkers being bullied by a supervisor. You're watching what's going on. You know it's not right. You're at work, but you're also on call. So you immediately begin to pray for your coworker and for the supervisor. When you get home that evening, you realize you're still stirred up about this. You can't forget what you saw, and so you keep praying. And it occurs to you as you keep praying that maybe there's something for you to do in this situation. So you think about that. And then you pray about what you've thought. And as you do, you come to believe that God really is calling you to do something. Perhaps to talk to your boss. Perhaps to say something to that other worker you hardly know. So you pray about that and you ask God for courage because it's pretty scary to get involved, isn't it? So much easier if God would just do something without me. And that scary thing, I, I think that's the reason that we pray but don't watch. That we call on God and then we shut off the ringer before he can call on us. Because we're afraid. We're afraid. Afraid we'll get ourselves into something we can't handle. An uncomfortable situation. Afraid we'll be called on to give money. Or to do something for which we're not prepared. We're afraid we'll look stupid. We'd rather that God just did what he was going to do without us. 
So we send our requests with one of those automatic responses on, on, you get on emails. Please do not reply. Just do what you're going to do, God, but, but don't come back to me. And we miss out on the opportunity to experience God in our real life, our daily life. So many people have doubts because of that. We miss the experience of growing into strong, faithful people that God wants us to be. Think about Nehemiah. He had a life. I mean, sometimes when we read the scriptures, we forget that because we see this little, little part of a person's life. He had a big life. He had one that was financially secure, comfortable, meaningful. He had friends. He had a job that brought him into contact with some of the world's most interesting people. It was crazy to think about leaving that. There was just too much to lose. I wonder if his thoughts went like this. God, you can't really want me to get involved in this. I mean, Israel's not even my home. I've never lived there. It's possible he had never been there before. I'm just letting my imagination get away with me. And yet at some point during those days of prayer, Nehemiah came to the place where he said, okay, God, if you want me to do something, I'll do it. I'll submit to your will. I'll obey you. That's huge in our prayer lives. Now, here's something else. <clears throat> Nehemiah started praying as soon as he heard what was going on. But he didn't stop praying. That night, he didn't stop praying even after a day or two. He may have stopped mourning and fasting, which he said he was doing, but he didn't stop praying. He tells us in chapter 1 that he heard the news and started praying in the month of Kislev. Kislev would be our October, November. When we come to the beginning of chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan. That would be our March, April. In other words, he spent four or five months praying about this. And it was during that time that he began to see that God might want to use him to be part of the answer. If all we do are one and done prayers, oh God, would you do this? We may never have that, that experience that he had. We won't know what it's like to get caught up in God's big work in the world. Now, I'm not saying that God can't answer our one and done prayers. He can in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But even when the answer comes, when the words are just out of our mouths, it's likely that God has been preparing for months or years or centuries or millennia. When we offer ourselves to God and are willing to be part of his answer, we get caught up in something much bigger than ourselves. In Nehemiah's case, God had been preparing the king, among many other things. Who knows what events, perhaps decades before, had prepared the king to ask that simple but momentous question. He now asks, this is Nehemiah 2.4, what is it you want? Nehemiah's already admitted, this is chapter 2, verse 2, that he was afraid. And for good reason. The Persian kings, at least at times, made it a punishable offense to appear in their presence unhappy. If you weren't smiling, you could get in trouble. Going into the king's throne room that way, Nehemiah knew he could get into trouble. He was afraid, but he didn't let fear rule him. Only God was entitled to do that. Now, Nehemiah is not the only person who battles with fear. We get scared too. But if we allow fear to rule us, we're going to miss out on the big work of God in the world. We won't see prayers answered 
like we could. And we won't be the answer to other people's prayers that God wants us to be. Eliminating fear, that's probably impossible. Obeying God in spite of fear is possible. Imagine what would have happened if Nehemiah had quailed when the king said, what is it you want? What if he had muttered, nothing, my king, I apologize, and forced a smile to his face and gone about his business? He would have missed out on the most important opportunity of his life. The people of Judah and Jerusalem would have gone on struggling in misery, and the answer to their prayers would have been delayed, and God would have preserved his people and prepared for their Messiah in some other way. But Nehemiah would have lost out on the biggest thing that ever happened to him. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, you can kind of imagine how he said it and how intimidated Nehemiah must have been. What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. I love that. Nehemiah talked to God and the king at the same time. To be able to talk to God and to someone else in the same conversation is an extremely valuable skill, but it has to be learned. I wouldn't be surprised if he learned it during those five months of talking and listening to God. The spontaneous prayer of verse 4, I don't think it was as spontaneous as it seems. It was the tip of an iceberg of prayer that lay beneath it. Detach that prayer from the months that gave rise to it, and it just floats away. Okay, let's wrap this up. <clears throat> now, maybe you're sitting there, and, and through this whole series on prayer, you've been thinking, I don't really see answers to prayer, at least none that I'm sure of. There are a number of things that could be involved. And the first one is this. I'm not going to mention all of them by any means, but I'll mention a couple. The first one is this. You might not have ever come over to God's side. That happens to lots of people. You might still be outside his rule and protection. Making requests of him in your state is a little like a German at the height of WW2 asking Winston Churchill for a favor. He's, the German's not a bad guy. He's a good guy, but he's on the wrong side. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ and given him your allegiance, you're on the wrong side, and you're probably not going to see answers to prayer. Further, even if you've joined God's side, but you know there's something some sin, some wrong, some attitude between you and God, it could be getting in the way of your prayers. And could be as putting it way too mildly. It is getting in the way of your prayers. For example, I'll just give you one example. If you're not treating your spouse right, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It could hinder your prayers. Our prayers aren't going to be right when we're wrong with God. And we learn... And Peter, they won't be right when we're wrong with our spouse. Now, there are other possibilities. Maybe none of those things. The problem may simply be that you're not watching. And you're not willing. Not watching for God's call and not willing to be involved in his answer. He may have answered hundreds of times, but... You haven't picked up when he's called. That's a tragedy because you won't receive the answer you need and God won't give the answer he wants to give. So what can we do? 
Well, if you're on the wrong side, as I mentioned a few moments ago, come on over. It's better over here. Join us. Become a follower of Jesus. God will accept you if you accept his son. That's the way it works. Through Christ, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Your past, your sins, won't prohibit you from coming to God and becoming his person. There's forgiveness for everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord. But it starts with him. What if you've already done that? Then you need to be watching. You are not done when you've made a request. Well, I prayed for that. And you're just getting started. To make a request and then not watch is a mistake. The psalmist says, in the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. You need to get in the habit of praying and watching. Be on call for God to do something through you. If not in answer to your prayers, then in answer to your friend's prayers. But it's not enough to watch. We must also be willing to be a part of his answer. Either to our own prayers or to someone else's. And the main thing that will stop us here is fear. I think we're a lot more fearful than we ever realize. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of embarrassment. We're afraid of loss. We can have Jesus for our Lord and Master. Or we can have fear for our Lord and Master. But we can't have both at the same time. So, if you've realized, I know that I'm not open because I'm afraid, then share your fears with the Lord. Talk with him about it. Tell him I'm scared. And the family I grew up in, you, you were never scared. Of course you were, but, but my Marine Corps dad didn't, fear was not an option. Well, of course he was afraid too, but he'd never admit it, never show it. And I grew up, never tell anybody you're afraid. Okay, that's just stupid. If you're afraid, tell God about it. I'm worried, God. I just don't know what to do. Tell him about it and then share that fear with some courageous Christ-following friend. Someone who will pray for you and with you and will encourage you. And you know what I mean by that? By encourage? He or she will instill courage in you. Don't go to somebody who says, yeah, you better play it safe. Go to somebody who's going to say, get in the game, man. You can do it. Do it now. Don't stop. Do what God's calling you to do. We're going to follow up on this next week. We're going to stay in Nehemiah for a little while because he's not done praying. And we're going to see how it happens as life is going by. Boom, 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 boom. But as to prayer, be on call. Watching as you pray. All right, Father, we have so much to learn. We're so bad at this. But I pray you'll change it. And not certainly for one or two or three of us. But Lord, I'm praying bigger than that for many of us so that we're a church that prays, that's devoted to prayer, and that watches, and that obeys. So make us that, for Jesus' sake. Amen.